Thanks so much for finding us here at the Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender, and my co-producer, Angela Washington, and I are ever so proud and honored to bring the stories of amazing people to you. These are survivors, thrivers, innovators, and trailblazers who tell us not just their stories, but how they got through whatever they got through to get to where they are. We hope you find them as inspiring as we do. Thanks so much for listening and for giving us the honor of your time. I'm very happy today to welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Carol Meneker. For 21 days in 1976, Carol Meneker served with 11 others on a sequestered jury in the trial of Frederick Burton, a young black revolutionary charged with the grisly murders of two white prison wardens. Carol was then 24 years old. 47 years later, she's publishing a memoir in which she unravels the trauma of that experience and comes to the unsettling conclusion that her youth, naivete, and perhaps white privilege may have led her to convict a man whose shoes she could never have walked in. Mr. Burton, now 77 years old, remains incarcerated in a Pennsylvania prison. Today, Carol has become an advocate for criminal justice reform and looks forward to the way that her story might influence others with political and legislative willpower to consider second chance laws for the thousands like Mr. Burton serving excessive sentences with no hope through the courts of re-earning their freedom. Carol chronicles her experience in her new memoir, The Worst Thing We've Ever Done, One Juror's Reckoning with Racial Injustice. Carol Meneker, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. Thank you, Betsy, for having me. So 1976 sounds like a lifetime ago, and it was, (laughs) at least a 47-year-old's lifetime. So can you tell me just a little bit about where you were living and what were your circumstances in 1976 when you were called to jury duty? Uh, in 1976, it was the bicentennial in Philadelphia, so the city was just uh, dancing. Everything was going on, and people were flocking there to go to the Liberty Bell. And I was working for a small nonprofit that was trying to make the Philadelphia public schools accountable, but I had an office job. I was married. I lived in a part of town that was a very old Irish neighborhood. It was it was the life that I probably, if I had dreamed of it, I would have said, this is what I wanted. There was another world going on in Philadelphia, though, which I didn't know about, and that was a world where the race relations between the city of Philadelphia's police department and the African-American community were awful. That's the best word I can choose. There was a lot of alleged police brutality, and there were a lot of African-Americans who were trying to protect their communities in a variety of ways. And that was a time when the Black Panthers were very public and they were frightening to a lot of people, especially white people. So you lived in one kind of environment in your house, in your traditional, if we dare say, call it that, kind of traditional upbringing of women born in the 50s, growing through the 60s. It was sort of that that era. And here you were called to jury duty. And this wasn't just any old jury. This wasn't somebody that was a traffic violation or something. This was a murder trial. And you were called. And tell me just a little bit about 
how was it that that sequestration happened? And what was that like for you? I was sequestered from the moment that I was chosen as a juror. And that's not always the case, but that was the case in this trial because it was so high profile. And sequestration was, I think, what they would call a full sequestration. So there was no communication with anyone outside of the people who others who were on the jury or the court officers who were essentially guarding us. And so there was a gap between when you were chosen and when the whole jury was chosen, which was what, a couple of weeks, right? Yes. It took two weeks to select the jury. I was juror number four. So there'd been three selected before me. So there were quite a few to go. And uh, I would imagine it was pretty challenging to find people in Philadelphia who who knew nothing about why Mr. Burton was in jail in the first place and who hadn't witnessed, at least through the news, the murders of these wardens. So in your 24-year-old self, kind of tootling through your life, I guess, I, I don't mean to minimize what you were doing, you're working and making a home and having a marriage and those kinds of things. You weren't, you weren't so tuned into what was going on with this challenge, the, the, cha- the conflict between African-Americans and the police, uh, certainly in the, in the Northern region. No, I was not tuned in at all. I think that's the right the right word to describe it. And it also pays for us to to remember too that 1976 there wasn't a 24 hour news cycle. There was no CNN on 24 hours a day. There was not the internet pummeling you with information, and so uh, it was easier to be sort of I'm going to use the the term wrongly, but kind of self sequestered in a way in in one's life or insulated or in a bubble, however we might want to talk about that. You know, I think that's the way everyone was at that time because they weren't impacted by the things that we're impacted by today. So here you were sent to a hotel room where there's no TV, where there's no telephone. Were you told to bring books? What I had was a small tweed suitcase that my husband brought for me, and it was uh, an overnight bag that we used to use, and that's what I had. Um, He did send some magazines. Um, Among them was a Psychology Today, which the court officers confiscated. (laughs) And really? um, But I was allowed to keep all the women's magazines. And I don't recall if he sent me books, but um, there was, you know, at some point I didn't even know what I wanted. It wasn't as if I could say, bring me this. Just the sequestration alone is such a, a an odd experience to go through. And and how long was the total? The total was three weeks, two weeks waiting for the jury to be completed. And the trial was only six days. So the trial was the shortest part of that experience. So here you were, as you call yourself, naive, uh, unexposed to such matters. And here you are sitting on a jury deciding someone's fate. Tell me about your experience of the trial and and your experience of deliberations. There were three things that we as a jury had to take into account when the trial was over as we deliberated. One was the testimony of the captain of the guards who witnessed, who claimed that he witnessed Mr. Burton actually stabbing one of the wardens. One was the testimony of Mr. Burton's co-defendant who had already been convicted of the crime and was serving a life sentence without parole for that. And the third were the instructions from the judges, which basically tells the jury, here's what the law is, and this is what you are asked to make your decision based on. And his instructions at that time were, if Mr. Burton was in the room, he should be found guilty of second-degree murder. And there's a law in Pennsylvania called the felony murder rule, 
And that's what that law says. So if someone's driving a getaway car and their friend is robbing a grocery store and somebody gets killed in that robbery, then the person driving the getaway car is guilty of the crime, the same crime of murder. Okay, so that's different than all of the wisdom I've gathered through watching t- police dramas on TV, which is all I know, which is that there's, it doesn't seem that there's a distinction between an accessory versus a participant. It's like if you were in the room when it happened and you didn't try to stop it, you were guilty of the same murder that the guy that actually used the weapon. And that's the felony murder rule. And many, many states in this country have that rule. And Pennsylvania has that rule with a mandatory... Even today. Even today with a mandatory sentence of life without parole. Wow. And Mr. Burton, to your knowledge, did not commit the murder itself. He was in the room when when that happened. I think today, this many years later, that Mr. Burton probably didn't kill anyone. But he was in the room and there was clear evidence that he was in the room. So you were following the orders of the court at the time and following the rules that were put before you. So, Carol, let me back up just a little bit and and say, I first came to know your story because you came to me as an editor and you were then writing this as a work of fiction. You were sort of using your your experience on this to kind of write a fictional version of something like this. But somehow in the gap between when you and I worked together and now, you transformed this and it became a memoir. Can you tell me about the the decision to write this as memoir versus and and why? What what's your what's the message that you're telling with this particular story? I started writing fiction I'd never written a book before, let's begin with that. And I started to look into the history of what was going on at that time in Philadelphia and I was really moved by what I was reading. And I, in my own mind, I was imagining fictional characters who had to actually live through that. And I did weave in the story of Mr. Burton, but in my fiction, he was the brother of a, of a woman who was the main character and he was in prison. Um, But everyone who knew me knew I was writing this book and the people who knew me and knew why I was writing the book, which was to sort of come to terms with this jury experience said, this is fine, but you really need to tell your story, that your story coming from you, first person from your heart is going to be much more compelling. And so I set that fiction aside and I started over again. And that's how, and I, and it was difficult. I think that's why I avoided it when I was writing the fiction. That was a way to keep me a certain distance away from this story. Right. But at some point, the whole reason I think I didn't know at the time was to come to terms with this, that I had, I had to tell my story. And that's how I got from fiction to nonfiction. So looking back, so in keeping aligned with what you're saying, which is you had to write your story. So your, your perspective on this story 47 years later, what's your perspective about your role in this and about the system that convicted Mr. Burton and where are you now with that? Because I see, of course, I read in your introduction that you are an advocate for criminal justice reform. So clearly something in this experience and in living it and looking back on it and understanding it has changed your view or enlightened your view in some way. Tell, tell me what perspective you have on this now. In, in the largest terms, my perspective is that my selection as a juror, that I was a pawn 
in the system to convict Mr. Burton. Hmm. I think that the defense attorney and the prosecution, they they sized me up enough. They, I don't think they had jury consultants then, but they do now. But they sized me up enough to know probably how I would vote based on how old I was, what race I was, what career I had. And I pretty much did what I think they thought I would do. And so I think also not knowing anything and being so remote from what it was like to be an African-American in Philadelphia was a real, it, it was a disadvantage to me as a human being to make this decision because without knowing all of that, I was still in my own little world. Hmm. And after writing the book and having friends read it and others read it and starting to process, well, how, what am I going to do next? I've come across a lot of organizations in this country who are trying to change criminal justice, trying to change the system in ways that I would like to see it be changed. And one of those organizations is called FAM, and that FAM, F-A-M-M, M as in Mary, um, stands for Families Against Mandatory Sentences, because it's the mandatory sentence in this case with Mr. Burton that the judge couldn't have done anything else. The judge couldn't have said, yeah, you were only in the room and you didn't do it, so I'm only going to give you 20 years. He didn't have a choice. So the mandatory sentence was what created the situation that he's in now. And it doesn't need to be that way. And so there are a number of ways in which the criminal justice system could be better. But this particular organization is an organization of families who have loved ones who are in prison and spending time with these folks on calls and looking at the efforts that they're making through the legislative process, not through the courts to change this has really opened up my eyes in a way that I wouldn't have expected. How so? Well, I thought the only solution for Mr. Burton was in the courts. And he's filed many petitions over the years to have his first conviction revisited. And he's been denied at every point. And I figured that's it. But then I met some of these folks and I realized that the the laws that are dictating what happened to him were put in place at one time and could be changed. And so it was another avenue to try to get justice or second looks or second chances, however you want to talk about it, for people who have already been in prison for 10 years and have reformed or have a new life, or there are people in prison with excessive sentences for drug charges. So it isn't just murder. Um, So I think the legislation is the root of it. The law of the land is the root of it. And that's the law that everybody in the criminal justice system has to follow. And so if you can change that, then maybe you can change the outcome for some of these folks. So your feeling is that because with hindsight, that his being in the room and the mandatory sentence that came with that, the way that that was looked at at that through the, through the eyes, the lens of that particular law, he's as guilty as if he had done it himself, that that set him up to have this extraordinarily long sentence for something that might have been a much shorter one. It would have been up to the judge. I think it's the mandatory sentence. You have to understand he was already in prison for murder, so that didn't look very good for him. But his petitions for relief in that conviction are very real, and they're the result of prosecutorial misconduct, and they're the result of a coerced testimony. So 
those things have been put before many courts. And I think that when you're an African-American accused of killing a white law enforcement person, and in his case, more than one white law enforcement person, you don't have the same opportunities as if you killed someone else. I mean, that sounds kind of strange, but killing a police officer is a much viewed as a much worse crime than any murder. Well, and, and of course, law enforcement personnel need to be protected and they're doing work that is there to protect the community and it doesn't make all of them blameless <laughs> and, and, and there's all these, there, there's no way to discuss this case without putting all the ands. Of course, we'd want somebody who murdered people in jail. We wouldn't want them out murdering other people, but the circumstances were measured differently because of the lens of the law, because of the circumstances that were that were present at that time. So your book details lots and lots of this that we won't have the luxury of time to go into. But I, w- I do want to ask you, though, a couple of new paths in our discussion. One is the title of your book is The Worst Thing We've Ever Done, One Juror's Reckoning with Racial Justice. When you're talking about the worst thing we've ever done, what is that to you? Well, the worst thing we ever done, that expression comes from something that Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative says all the time. He says, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. And he's describing people, I think, well, he's describing everyone. But in the context of his work, he's describing people who are in prison and they probably did something really bad, but that doesn't mean they're bad people and don't ever deserve to be treated as a human again. Mm. And so um, that's where it comes from. But for me, the issue has become so big in my life that I think my failure to know really what was going on at that time in the world and what was happening with this trial and not knowing anything about his previous conviction, one of the worst things I've ever done was to not know enough to make a decision about somebody's life and not really even understanding what that meant. And for me, that's the worst thing I've ever done. And I think for Mr. Burton, and I don't know what he actually did, but he's more than the worst thing he ever did. And so that's how I came up with that title. Hmm. It's funny, when I was typing up notes about our conversation, I mistyped it. And I put the worst thing I've ever done. I thought it was I that you were kind of owning it. But I, I see now that you're including all of us in that, that, you know, we all make votes. We all select the people that make laws. And so we all participate in this particular, in, in our in our judicial process at one level or another, either as jurors, as voters, or as lawmakers, right? Or as judges for that, judges, attorneys, all of that. So there is a we-ness about looking at how we, as in America, we are the most incarcerating country on the planet. It's per capita, not just that we have more people because we have more people, but we have statistically, proportionally, significantly more people in jail and certainly more people of color in jail for all of the reasons that can be had from poverty to economic disadvantage to discrimination to a million other things. So I'm wondering what what do you hope when you talk about want, wanting to 
influence those with political and legislative willpower to consider second chance laws. What what do you see as loss, which is law changes that would be important in such cases like like the one with Mr. Burton? Well, at least uh, the first thing would be to not have a mandatory sentence. You mean like a mandatory minimum? Uh, no, a mandatory sentence at all. Okay. In other words, if you if the crime is X, then you get this sentence, and there's no negotiating with the judge or the lawyer or anything. So no special circumstances. No special it. circumstances. So the law says that you get the mandatory sentence is life without parole. That's what you get if you're convicted, and the judge has no jurisdiction over modifying that for extenuating circumstances. So getting rid of those mandatory sentences would be one thing. Um, And that's a piece of that felony murder law, which is if you're in the room, you did it law. And that would be one thing. I think also, and this is happening in some states in the country, there are what's known as conviction integrity units that the defense, the um, prosecution, the district attorneys are trying to go back and revisit some of these cases that were not fair for a variety of reasons. And most of the people who are exonerated from jail, many of those exonerations are because of things that the district attorney's office did or the, or the police or the detectives did. Either errors or... Or just things they weren't supposed to do. And um, so many of the people who are exonerated, I think people think that DNA is the biggest reason people get exonerated, but it actually isn't. It's because of prosecutorial misconduct. Mm-hmm. at least from what I've read. And I should say I'm no expert at this, but I have immersed myself in it right. for a long time. And so what I would change is that felony murder rule first. And then I would change, and this is sort of pie in the sky, but there is no compassion in the criminal justice system. There's only the law. And the law is what dictates. And I've never been a victim of a crime, so I can't speak from the victim perspective, which is really important in this conversation. But my experience with this scenario has been that there is just no compassion. And the way that people operate in that world is they use the law as their Bible. And if the law says this is the way it should be, then this is the way it should be, and I'm going to go home and sleep at night. And that's where... I'm not sure how to integrate that compassion, but that's what's missing. Well, and I have to tell you, it's it's a tricky thing. You know, there's no absolutes in this conversation because on one hand, a mandatory sentence on the surface could sound like a good thing. It can sound like a standard, like, oh, if you commit this crime in this in this court's jurisdiction, you get this sentence. And if you commit it over here, you get that. You know, there's a standard in a way. Mm-hmm. And that, on the surface, that can seem like a good thing, right? We wouldn't want one person getting 10 years and one person getting six months for the, doing the exact same thing. But you're saying that, I think, that these mandatory sentences are cut and dry without looking at any, looking further for circumstances that can be considered in the sentencing that might moderate it in some way or alter it in some way. I'm not saying that they shouldn't be sentenced for something they did, but they should not, if the mandatory sentence is life without parole, then what is the prison system doing? It's not rehabilitating. It's not preparing you to go back into the world. It's not um, because you were 20 years old when you did this thing and now you're 40 and you wouldn't dream of doing it when you were 40. 
Um, I mean, there's a lot of data that shows that many of these crimes are committed by young people who use poor judgment. <laughs> and then they end up in jail for life and they can't get out and they never contribute to society again. And their families are missing a family member for a really forever. Uh, which is nearly unimaginable <laughs> for those of us who who don't have an incarcerated family member. It's hard to imagine. I understand in, in our limited time remaining, Carol, I understand that you've had contact with the Burton family. And uh, in, in I don't know if it's just in research for this book or, or all. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Um, I've had very limited contact with the Burton family themselves. I've had a lot of contact with Mr. Burton's attorney, who happens to be in California, even though Mr. Burton is in Pennsylvania. And that's a big part of my story is the relationship I've created with him and trying to become part of his family that's committed to getting justice for Mr. Burton. I only spoke with Mr. Burton once on the telephone. And to be perfectly honest, I had no idea what to say to him <laughs> uh, because it was just uh, it was a strange moment for me because I had so much emotion tied up in this. And what I wish I'd said to him now was, I'm sorry. But what I said to him was, I don't even know what to say to you. And what he said to me a moment later was, well, we're all here. Well, we're all here. I was just sort of blown away by that. And then I did speak to his son a couple of times. His son is in his 50s now and has been trying to get his dad out of prison for as long as he's been in prison. And uh, my closest relationship has been with his lawyer, which has been um, a real learning experience for me. Well, Carol, it's a compelling story with so much more detail than we have time to discuss today. So this book, The Worst Thing I've Ever, excuse me, let me say it again. I almost blew it there. The Worst Thing We've Ever Done, One Juror's Reckoning with Racial Justice. It's just, it's self-examining. It's you kind of trying to understand this both historically and personally and morally and legally in all of those ways. And it's certainly something that that we can all take a look at. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me today. Thank you, Betsy. I appreciate it. I'm struck in thinking through my conversation with Carol Menneker today with the notion of looking backward. You know, looking back at decisions that we made, choices that we made in our youth but with the eyes of today can send us all into conniptions, can't it? <laughs> it can really, we can look back and rue the day that we made that choice. We can look back and with grace and understanding about why we made the choice we made at the time. But I always come back to the words of Maya Angelou, who said, you did then what you knew then, you know better now, so do better now. So that, to me, is both accountability for past choices as well as grace and understanding for choices that were made in a certain context, in a certain with a certain vantage, with limited knowledge or understanding. And I so admire that Carol has told me in our separate conversations that her goal for this book is that it will help influence and perhaps help someone to change the sentencing when people are convicted, that it'll be more just 
more fair, more right, and more humane. That's a pretty good goal. So her book is available through your indie bookstore, The Worst Thing We've Ever Done by Carol Meneker. And you can go to our website, themorningglory.project.com to see links to other social justice programs that Carol was talking about and, and some more even beyond what we got to mention. Thank you so much for listening to The Morning Glory Project. It's always my honor to have your time and my sincerest hope that the morsels of inspiration or information offered here in this conversation become part of the garden that helps you to bloom.